Well, as I said earlier, this morning brings us to our last worship service of 2019, and maybe, just maybe, ever. (laughs) As Christians, we believe that Jesus is coming back to judge the earth. And it's written that when Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples stood by watching as he went up. And suddenly two men appeared in white robes, presumably angels, and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And Jesus himself said, if, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. In Hebrews 9.28 it says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In 2 Peter 3 it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. There is a question there posed in 1 Peter 3.11. In light of these things, what sort of people ought you to be? That's a good question, I think, for us to ponder as we reflect over the past year and give some thought to the kind of people we should be in 2020. And I like to use this analogy. You know, I'm settling in and learning to live among you Aroostook County people, but I've learned a few things, even in the short time I've lived here. Long before our first snowfall, there are many signs that people believe winter is coming to Aroostook County, right? You start seeing those weird little pallet A-frames over bushes, All of a sudden, you're driving down the road and you see a truck coming with a snowplow attached to the front of it. You hear the telltale sound of studded snow tires on the pavement. People put those little rods in their yards to warn the plow guy not to plow beyond certain points. All of a sudden, there are stacks of pellet stove pellets outside of the stores, like a machine gun nest. And most tragically of all, Winnie's closes. (laughs) People, People believe winter is coming, so they act like it. They adjust. Things change. And that's the spirit behind this question in 1 Peter 3. What sort of people ought you to be? In light of the truth of this statement, that the earth and the heavens will dissolve in the heat of an all-consuming fire, that the day is coming where Jesus will judge the earth in righteousness. What sort of people ought you to be? 
What difference does this make in how you live your lives? Take Lot and Rahab, for example. If you know your Bibles, you are familiar with the story of Lot and Rahab. If you don't, you can find those stories in the Old Testament. Lot was a man, he was a nephew of Abraham, who was warned that the city of Sodom was to be destroyed for its wickedness. So he warned the men to whom his daughters were engaged about the impending reality of God's wrath. But the Bible says that they laughed at him and thought that he was joking. When they wouldn't listen, Lot fled the city with his family. In light of these things, what sort of person was Lot? He became an evangelist of sorts, somebody who warned others that the danger was coming, that they could flee if they would, and he fled himself with his family. Or take Rahab, for example. Rahab was the woman in Jericho who hid the spies when they came to search out the city. Rahab had been warned that a day of destruction was coming to Jericho, so she spent those last few days remodeling her kitchen and snapping up real estate at a great price. No, that's not true. No, the Bible tells us that she gathered her family into the safety of her apartment and hung a scarlet cord from her window as per her arrangement with those same spies that she had hidden from the men of Jericho so that she and everybody in her apartment would be saved if she hung that scarlet cord out the window. What sort of people did they become when they were warned of a coming day of judgment? How did they spend their days? What, and most importantly, what did they not do? What did not become their preoccupation in those times? Their belief in that coming day radically changed the way they spent their days. In both instances, they obeyed instructions and shepherded others to safety. But I think the most famous example of such a scenario in our Bibles has got to be that of Noah. Noah and the ark. And I've come to appreciate really and truly that the story of Noah and his ark is really eerily similar to the last days in which we are living. Jesus really said as much himself in Luke 17. He said, just as it was, just as it was in the days of Noah so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, speaking about the day when he returns. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus says that the days in which Noah were li was living were much the same as the days in which we are living in the days uh, leading up to Jesus' soon return. There are so many meaningful parallels between the church age in which we're living and those days when the door of the ark stood open, awaiting the day of the flood. And in light of that day, what sort of person was Noah? The story of Noah spans roughly four chapters in the book of Genesis, but Hebrews 11:7 provides us with a handy summary of the entire account. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to break out this verse and study it a bit. And as we do, let's keep this question handy in our minds. Because we're not just talking about Noah. (laughs) We're looking at Noah so that God might speak to us about what sort of people ought we to be. The first thing it says in verse 7 there is, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. He's warned about events that are unprecedented. There is no historical example for them to look back on and say, oh, this happened before, it could happen again. The language here in verse 7, referring to events as yet unseen, seems to be a reference back to verse 1 of Hebrews 11, where the author of the book of Hebrews defines faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is the very stuff of faith, that God says it will come to be, and although everything in his senses, everything that his eyes and ears and nose can pick up, say this can't ever happen, or isn't likely to ever happen, he still persists in believing it. We're reminded also of what Paul wrote in his second letter to the church in Corinth, exhorting the people there to walk by faith and not by sight. And what were these as yet unseen events that God had told Noah would happen. We read about this in Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, says the Lord. So Noah was forewarned about events for which there was no historical precedent. And there was nothing apart from God's warning to corroborate what God had said was going to happen. Nothing he could see or experience in his surroundings backed up what he had been told. In fact, there would have been a lot to undermine his confidence in the warning he had been given. Noah's obedience is extraordinary when you consider the circumstances surrounding it. He is commanded by God to build a massive boat far removed from the nearest ocean, a thousand times too big for his family. And when he is done, he is to fill it with animals. Furthermore, who ever heard of rain? Genesis 2, 5 through 6 would lead us to believe that it had not yet rained on the earth at the time of Noah. And it indicates that the earth was being watered by means of springs, rivers, and a system of evaporation and condensation. I'm not a scientist, I don't understand any of that, (laughs) but that's what I read in one of my commentaries. Some scientists believe that there was a water canopy over the earth, and this helped keep a uniform temperature on the land mass. Noah was warned by God concerning unprecedented events, and Noah received them by faith. I think it's also significant that it probably took as many as 120 years to complete construction on the ark. 
And during that time, as the years turned into decades and the decades piled up into more than a century, I'm sure that Noah had occasion to doubt if he had, if he had heard God correctly in the beginning. <laughs> I watched a documentary once which told the story of a volcanic eruption on the small Caribbean island of Montserrat. Do we have any Montserratians in the audience today? No, they never, they're never here. The island's government had been monitoring the volcano with the help of a team of foreign scientists. And when they became convinced that the volcano was about to blow, they went to the airwaves warning the islanders to flee that portion of the island that was most likely to be affected by the eruption. And at first, everyone heeded the warnings. They fled to safety. But then do you know what happened? Days turned into weeks, weeks, months. No eruption happened. The volcano didn't erupt, and they began to slowly trickle back to their homes and farms. And when the volcano finally did erupt violently, many people died as pyroclastic flows raced down the side of the mountain and filled the valleys where those people lived. Noah wasn't like that, though. He persevered in the work over a span of time, even when the seasons went on and on and on and on. In 1986, when I was just eight years old, I asked Jesus into my heart at a Billy Graham crusade in Washington, D.C. That's where the moment happened for me. I can remember very clearly, and I can't do a Billy Graham impression. I wish I could. But he said in that just very typical Billy Graham voice, I can remember there's chilling. <laughs> he said, you're going to live forever. The only question is where. And I, I disagree with that statement in some ways, but at the time it had a profound impact on me. I became very afraid. It was the same as the government saying to the people of Montserrat, this thing is going to blow. you got to get out of the way. <laughs> and I fled to safety. When he gave an invitation, I got up out of my chair and I went down to the front as quickly as I could. I got to get this thing done before Jesus comes back. That was how my walk with the Lord began. And as I went down, I could still picture it in my mind's eye, thousands of people streaming down to the front. It was a powerful moment and thrilling to me. However, just a couple of years later, Billy Graham gave an interview on PBS wherein he stated his belief that only 25% of those who went forward at his crusades actually became Christians. In recent years, studies have shown that only 6% of people who go forward at an evangelistic crusade are any different in their beliefs or their mode of living one year later. Well, what happened? I think maybe the days turned into weeks, the weeks into months, the months into years, and the volcano didn't blow. And they just kind of trickled back to their old lives. And there's something to see here in what Noah did. And that he was warned about events as yet unseen, but the true mark of faith was that he believed in them even when over time... They didn't happen yet. I, 
I really don't think, though, that this passage is primarily teaching that Noah was an amazing guy, though. Kurt Strassner, in his book, Opening Up Genesis, says this. He says, The ancient world, like our own, deserved the judgment of God. But amid the ugliness of sin and the promise of judgment, we read these wonderful sentences in chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And reading those verses, we could now launch into a nice Be Like Noah sermon. (laughs) But that really isn't the point of this passage. The point of the story is not that Noah was a good guy, but that God was gracious to Noah even though he wasn't. When we look closely at verse 8, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word translated favor here is the Hebrew word that means grace. Noah found grace, free, unmerited kindness in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, yes, that's true, but he was not naturally so. Even his capacity for obedience was a gift from God. By nature, Noah was a born sinner, and we see that at the end of chapter 9, when he sprawled out drunk and naked. The curse of Abraham had Adam, I'm sorry, the curse of Adam had fallen as heavily on Noah as it had on anyone else. So the only reason Noah was blameless in his time was because God had shown him favor, unmerited kindness, grace, and had given him as a gift the capacity for greater obedience. The remarkable thing about verses 8 through 9 is not Noah's goodness, but God's favor, God's grace. And the effect of verse 8 then is to say the whole earth was wicked, but of his own free will, God decided to show undeserved kindness to Noah and his family. And isn't that our story? Tell me, fellow Christians, who among you are not wicked? (laughs) Any hands? Nobody. No, we all have rats living in the attic. We've all got our crushes on the world. We've all got sin. None of us are deserving of what Jesus has done for us. We are all in the same boat as Noah. That Jesus did what he did for you while you were yet sinners. But then we read this. He's warned about events that are unprecedented, yet unseen, and it says that he did something about it. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. God gave Noah specific instructions for the construction of an ark, a great ship that would provide safe haven for Noah, for his family, and for all the animals of the earth, and presumably for anyone else who was willing to join them on board. God said, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. 
Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for, your, and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. So the big takeaway here is this. God warns Noah about events as yet unseen, and then he did not just sit on that information. He did not not do anything. It says he did all this. He did all that God commanded him. So what has God commanded us to do? What sort of people ought you to be? Noah built the ark as he'd been told and readied himself and his family to enter the ark. And when the rains came and the world perished, Noah, sinner though he was, was saved. Noah found favor, undeserved grace in the eyes of the Lord. Wearsby writes this, he says, We do not live by explanations, but by promises. God had made promises to Noah about what he would do. And brothers and sisters, he has also made promises to us. The account of Noah's finding favor with God is a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that man is still as sinful as he ever was. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. God has also warned us in this room about events as yet unseen. The gospel says that one day God is going to destroy all flesh again, also because of wickedness, and this time by fire. But the gospel also says that just as he did in the days of Noah, God has provided us with a way of escape, an ark. Our ark is the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, who lived a sinful life, died in our place on the cross, and rose on the third day, we, like Noah, may find favor in the eyes of the Lord. And yes, as detailed as was God's plan for Noah's ark, the wood, the pitch, the dimensions, the windows and doors, he laid down plans for the 33 years of Jesus' life on the earth with much more care. In his premeditated mercy, God planned out every detail of the life of Jesus so as to provide us with a perfect Savior, with an ark that will not sink. As Romans 10.11 says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. God has fixed his day of judgment. The sands of time are sinking. The day of judgment draws closer. And in that day, God will not relent of his fury. But for now, we live like Noah in an age of favor. The door of the ark of Jesus is wide open to any and all who would come in. Noah demonstrated a faith that does. 
It's a true statement that what we believe about God will be revealed in what we do. And what we do reveals what we actually believe about God. We can say winter is coming, but if I don't put snow tires on my car, if I don't go out and buy a snow shovel, if I don't put sacks of salt by the door, if I don't fill my heating oil thing in the basement, (laughs) if I don't go through all those steps, it's really left in doubt if I actually think winter is coming. Noah was really the first prepper. Do you guys remember that old show, Doomsday Preppers? Did you ever watch that show? In the United States, the disaster preparedness business is a phenomenon that has grown into a multi-billion dollar industry. In recent years, it has become known among marketing experts as the doom boom. According to one industry analyst, there are 3.7 million Americans who describe themselves as preppers. Everything from dehydrated beef stroganoff to backup generators to small arsenals are being stockpiled in backyard bunkers all across this fair land of ours. (laughs) Now, I don't think having a 50-gallon drum of peanut butter is going to help people much when Jesus comes back. But my point is this, what these people believe, these preppers, crazy or not, is finding concrete expression in how they spend their time and their money. If they believe that something catastrophic is going to happen, they're doing something about it. That is the very stuff of faith, isn't it? They're spending time and money, a lot of it. And here's a convicting question for the church. What does the way we spend our time and money say about what we believe to be true? What conclusions could our neighbors fairly make about our beliefs based on how we live? To outward appearances, am I like Rahab remodeling my kitchen? Am I sweeping the decks of the Titanic? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? That is the question posed in 1 Peter 3. Just as in Noah's time, the days are evil and there is a building project going on. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus declares, I will build my church. And this is a building project that all of God's people should be invested in because it really is the only vehicle that will pass through the coming day of judgment and deliver its cargo safely on the other side. These are days of a great gathering in. The door of the ark is wide open. These are days of favor. Anybody who would come into the safety of the ark of Christ will find refuge there on the day of judgment. Ephesians 5.16 exhorts us to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And please note that Noah was motivated by a desire not only to save himself from the coming flood, but also others. And so we also should be motivated by an awareness of the coming judgment to bring as many as possible into the ark of Jesus. It goes on and says this, By this, by building the ark, 
Noah condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. In Genesis, we read that the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. It says that by building the ark, Noah condemned the world. And we might ask, in what sense did he condemn the world? We've already observed that Noah's faith influenced his practice. It moved him to build an ark. His faith really condemned the unbelief of others, and his obedience condemned their contempt and rebellion. Good examples either convert or condemn sinners. And this shows how believers, being warned of God to flee from the wrath to come, are moved with fear to take refuge in Christ and become heirs of the righteousness of faith. Really, the way that it works that Noah condemned the world is that really the Bible presents this as just a binary choice. There's not a gray in-between area. It's either you're in the ark or you're outside of the ark. You're either, it says in Matthew 25, that when Jesus returns, he will divide people to his left and to his right as one would divide sheep from goats. You see, this is the biblical truth, that in the end, there will only be in Christ and out of Christ. There will only be in the ark and out of the ark. There are only to the left and to the right. There's life and there's death, and there's no middle. It's stark. It's sobering. The Bible, the gospel is not complicated. It is not difficult to understand. God is not interested in making us jump through hoops. It's as simple as walking into the ark, putting your trust in Jesus. But although all that is true, the stakes are very high. There is a way that leads to death, and there is a way that leads to life. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness in the days before the flood. He was a preacher. He was an evangelist, and we can see why. You can imagine if you lived in the neighborhood of Noah, this crazy guy for over 100 years building this enormous edifice, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It's about the size of one and a half football fields. It's about as wide as a football field and four stories high. It must have been famous and well-known, and many times he must have been called upon to explain what exactly are you doing there, Noah. <laughs> and Noah didn't say, I'm sure, well, it's just kind of a hobby of mine. I imagine he told the truth. 
You want to know why I'm building this? Here's why. God is going to destroy all mankind because of wickedness. You should repent. You should pick up a hammer and help me. (laughs) If we can get this thing built faster, if you would help. Well, rejecting the ark left them with no alternative but condemnation and wrath. And likewise, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he is saying safety can only be found in the ark of Jesus Christ. If you don't come in to the safety and refuge of me, there is nothing left but to remain outside on that day of wrath. Jesus is urging us all to climb aboard the security and safety of Jesus Christ, our ark, because on that day there will only be those who are in Christ and those who are out. Those are chilling words in Genesis 7.23. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The ark shows that we are spared from God's wrath through Christ, our substitute. There are many parallels between the ark and Jesus. The ark of Noah was a place of safety. It protected its inhabitants from the outpoured wrath of God on a sinful world. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You get those words, in him? (laughs) When I I hear that, I visualize, at least this morning, Noah and his family in the ark. If you're in Christ, that is very same language in my mind to Noah and his family being in the ark. And just as the rains beat down on the ark, the full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. You see, the wrath of God poured out on the ark, but the inhabitants of the ark were safe inside. This is the same with us who have taken refuge in Jesus. If you are found in Christ this morning, he took our punishment on the cross so that we can receive by grace grace through faith his reward. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, I picture Noah and his family in the ark, hidden, as it were, from the wrath going on outside. Jesus was punished by God on the cross, standing in as a substitute in the place of sinners, like you and me, who can now receive salvation because Christ bore the wrath of God on himself in our place. It is through this substitutionary work of Christ on the cross that we are able to be reconciled to God. And likewise, the judgment of God fell on the ark and not on those within the ark. What a wonderful picture of Christ the ark is. It bore God's wrath in the flood while Noah and his family were preserved inside. No judgment can fall on the one who is in Christ because the wrath of God falls on Jesus, not on the Christian who, like Noah, is safe inside. Those outside the ark had to bear the full force of the flood. 
God's wrath was poured out on them in full measure because they were not in the ark. And so it will be to all who are not in Christ when the day of judgment falls on them. Now, I take no pleasure in those words. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think of myself particularly as a fire and brimstone kind of a preacher. But I do think we need to speak soberly about what God says. What he has said will come to pass. The good news is only good news because horrible bad news came first. Isn't that true? And that bad news is this, that a man has sinned. We have rebelled. And because of that rebellion, because of that sin, there is a day of wrath coming. Because God is just and righteous, he cannot look on the, other, the other way on sin. Sin must be punished. But God is so much more than just just and righteous. Thank God, literally, that he's also full of grace and mercy. That because God loves you personally, he is not just a God of heavy-handed wrath. He is an open-handed God of mercy and grace. And the only way to reconcile these two parts of who God is, the only way God can be perfect in his attributes, is the cross. Something must bear the brunt of that wrath. And amazingly, and this is the great gospel truth, no other religion has this, God has said, I took that punishment onto myself. Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is the offended party, became like us, so that he could go to the cross and take that penalty in our place. And now all those who have sought refuge in him, who have put their trust in him for salvation, are like Noah and his family in the ark. When God's wrath is poured out on the ark, they are safe inside, preserved as it were. And not only that, but the floods and the rain and all of it did not sink the ark. The ark rose up above it. And our place of refuge also did not stay in the grave. After three days, it rose. It rose up above the death. And all those who were inside were raised with him. The ark is a prefiguring of these wonderful truths. And it is a challenge to us about how we are to live in these days when the door of the ark stands open. There is a building project. And there is a great gathering in. And that is how we are to spend these days as we wait for that last day when Jesus returns. In 2 Peter 3, we read these words. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's a challenge here as we close out this service and as we look forward to 2020 together. The first one is this. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, the question is what sort of people ought you to be? There is a building project. We are to be about the building of the church. And there is a great effort to gather into the church. This is the great central calling on your life. This is the thing which a million years from now will matter far more than all the other things that we fill our days with. But is that the great central aim of your life? The other is this. If you're here this morning and you have never put your trust in Jesus for salvation, know this, that the door of the ark is still wide open. But nobody knows the day or the hour of his coming. Jesus says that, actually, it says in Second Peter there, that the day will come like a thief at a time that you do not expect. Jesus said that the day of the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. People will be going to work, getting married, planting crops. They'll be just going about their business. And then it will happen. And on that day, the door of the ark will close. The days of decision will be over. Today is the day to put your trust in Jesus for salvation. And if you have not yet done that, if you have not yet sought refuge in the person of Jesus Christ, our ark, and you're confused about how do I do that, I would just say this, very simply. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. I'm not going to ask anybody to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to hold your hand up. But if today you want, to add, you want to put your trust in Jesus for salvation, you can agree with the words of this prayer as I pray them, and it can be your prayer. I would only ask this, don't leave this place today without telling somebody that you became a follower of Jesus. Come and find me. It would make my year for as long as it lasts. <laughs> and I would love to tell you what the next step is as a new follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm personally challenged by the story of Noah. I'm a follower of yours, God. I have been since 1986 when Billy Graham gave that invitation. And Father, the question is, you have been gracious, you have made known to me certain truths. What am I going to do about it? What sort of person ought I to be? Should I invest my heart more heavily in this world that is going to burn and dissolve, or should I lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal? Father, there is a building project. There is a great gathering in. And I pray that my brothers and sisters in 2020 would be a part of that effort, that we would all take seriously our responsibility before you, Lord, our great privilege before you, to be a part of that work and to persevere in it as Noah did. 
But God, maybe there is someone here this morning who is just at the front end of a conversation with you about becoming a follower of Jesus. They've heard today the sobering biblical gospel truth that one day the earth will be destroyed by fire and that there is only one place of refuge to be found and that is in the church, the body of Christ. And I don't mean this church building, I mean, of course, the great body of Christ to take refuge in Jesus himself. And if such a person is here in this room, Father, they could just agree with these words as I speak them. Make this their own prayer to you. And they can become a follower of Jesus today. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. I have strayed from your law. I have broken your laws. I am am guilty and I am deserving of the wrath that uh, you have said will be poured out on all the wicked and the ungodly. Father, I have no goodness to bring to you. I have nothing to bring you but my horrible need. I need a Savior. I cannot save myself. I know that, Lord, nobody can go to heaven unless they are perfectly righteous. And I am perfectly unrighteous. But I believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross in my place, that he was buried in the grave and that he rose three days later and that all those, Lord, who have put their trust in him, their sins died with him on the cross and they were raised victorious with him out of the grave. God, that is what I have come to believe. And I, Lord, I give my life to you. Lord, I want to be yours and follow you all the days that you have left for me until the day when Jesus returns. Father, I want to follow you in obedience. I want to fight sin in my life. I want to become like the God who has saved me. Father, I put my trust in Jesus for salvation, and I know that on the last day, I will not be disappointed. That ark will not sink. Please receive me, Lord, as your own. In Jesus' name, amen.